Hey y'all, what if you really could change your life? If there was a way to be healthy and intentional in every area of your life? Good news, there is. And we show you how each week on All of You Whole. Hosted by me, Caroline Fossil, entrepreneur, wellness expert, author, and speaker. Every episode is an in-depth look at how to help you get unstuck, be brave in your life choices, and have a meaningful life all either from my own experiences or from the experts I interview. My goal is to help you build a healthy, connected, and intentional life that fulfills your greatest purpose. It's not drought that causes bare soil, but it's bare soil that causes drought. And so that's exactly, you know, when I say that over 500 acres of this land was bare soil, we were ineffective at capturing any rainfall we got. It all ran off, took topsoil with it, And so the water cycle was shattered. And so once we covered that soil, we grew those plants, we had roots that were breaking up and changing the structure. We had the biology that was able to capture and hold the water. Well, what happened? We held water and then springs came. Springs came out of nowhere. So that was real special. Today on the show, I am so excited to introduce you to my new friend, Taylor Collins. You might know Taylor and his wife, Katie Forrest, as the co-founders of Epic Provisions, which is the first 100% grass-fed meat, fruit, and nut bar. I'm sure you've had Epic Bars before, especially if you're in the Whole30 and Paleo communities. The couple sold Epic Provisions to General Mills in 2016, and since then, they have been active in helping to grow regenerative supply chains at their new parent company, Force of Nature. Taylor and Katie live on their ranch, Rome Ranch, which I have had the pleasure of visiting in Fredericksburg, Texas. And today on the show, I'm really thrilled to bring the show to you where we talk about regenerative agriculture and how we both have hope for the future of this planet because of regenerative agriculture and because of the work of people like Taylor and his wife, Katie. Additionally, I'm so glad that we dove into the topic of the nutrition of regeneratively grown, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, bison, elk, etc., etc. This is a conversation you can't miss, so I'm so excited for you to listen to it. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Taylor. We are so thrilled and honored and excited to chat with you today. Oh, Caroline, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So first, I'd love to know when and how you decided to start Rome Ranch and Force of Nature after you successfully sold Epic Provisions. Yeah, I wish there was like this moment. Will Harris always says a burning bush moment, but I didn't have that. It was, I think, a accumulation of moments in my life. And it always came back to health and wellness. So physical health, emotional, spiritual health, all of it's connected, right? And so when we were building the brand Epic, my wife and I started that company in like 2012. And one of the things that we got to experience that I never otherwise would have was we got to visit a lot of our suppliers. So our regenerative Mm -hmm. ranches that we were sourcing meat from. And being on those landscapes was life-changing. I mean, the soil was alive. The ecosystem was robust and diverse, and it was teeming with life. And it was just a really inspiring place to be. It was more beautiful than any national park we'd ever traveled to or any other country, any other untouched area. Mm. And so in the back of our minds, we always had this idea that if we had the opportunity to pursue that, 
profession, that career path, vocational opportunity, that would be the highest calling in our lives. And so when we sold Epic, we ended up selling the company to General Mills in 2016. And then almost immediately started looking for landscapes or mm. our land to manage. And we purchased Rome Ranch the year after. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so awesome. So we've talked about regenerative agriculture on this show before, but can you tell us who and what benefits from regenerative agriculture? Yeah, of course. Everyone's definition is a little bit different and that's what I like about it, but there's commonalities. Mm -hmm. And the way that I think about regenerative agriculture and who benefits from it, it's holistic. Everyone benefits. It's not a linear journey. It's not prescriptive. It's very outcomes-based. And so it's measurable. And when you think about a healthy ecosystem, there's a community of life there. And the community is everything from your livestock, your animals, to the ground nesting birds, to the field mice, the snakes, the insects, Mm -hmm. and then the the life that's within the soil. So there's more life in one tablespoon of soil than all humans on the face of the planet since the start of time. That's a community, right? And so regenerative agriculture serves all those communities in a way that creates a net positive return. So it can actually do things like sequester atmospheric carbon, which Mm -hmm. is wonderful for consumers, right? Who are concerned about global warming or climate change, captures water, rainfall more effectively. So it's recharging aquifers. Our watershed is cleaner. So it benefits that ecosystem, builds soil, produces nutrient-dense food. Again, comes down to consumers, down to soil. And so it's just really everyone that participates in it has to have a net positive benefit. And that's the really beautiful part of that system. Oh, man. I think that consumers either don't know what regenerative agriculture is or maybe just think this benefits the planet, but I can only afford to like shop for myself. So I love that the way, like I just learned things and what you said. And so it benefits so many people, including us, the planet, the soil, the animals, everybody. So I've been to Rome Ranch and have seen it thriving firsthand. All the things that you're describing, it's not just the bison, the cattle, it's like all the birds that you hear while you're there. It's a whole entire ecosystem. So can you describe to our audience what Rome Ranch was like before you started these regenerative practices and when you bought it and what it's like now? Sure. When we purchased the ranch in 2017, so we're managing 900 acres of Mm -hmm. land in central Texas. So it's in Fredericksburg, Texas. It's this beautiful community and all the land out in this area. Actually, all land globally has been degraded through human mismanagement in some Mm -hmm. capacity. We're only farming and ranching at a very small percent of the actual productivity of what our landscapes were like 100 years ago. And so our land specifically was managed industrially. 50% of all of our soil was planted as monoculture row crops, and that is chemical and mechanical warfare against Mother Nature. We acquired an ecological desert. It was Mm -hmm. There was no life. We did soil monitoring day one, and we had less than half a percent of organic matter in our soil. And so <laughs> the, the significance of that, historically, this area would have been 8 to 10%. And for every 1% in organics matter of your soil, you can hold an inch of rain. So that's about 20,000 mm. gallons per acre. So at any given point in time, we were only able to catch half an inch of rain or less. And so our water cycle was broken. Bare soil right. was everywhere. Our energy cycle was broken. The community dynamics was broken because there was no biodiversity. And so we saw this property and it was so degraded and we thought this is perfect it doesn't get worse than this (laughs) that's the point we want to take this degraded terribly neglected piece of land and then use animal impact 
to restore it, to return it to its previous biological potential. And so that's been our journey ever since. And what we've been able to accomplish in a short period of time is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah. I feel like that was like a really great strategic move to be like, let's get the worst land we can so that we can prove that this is possible. So like props for that. But at what point, like how long did the transition take? And do you feel like you're still transitioning? When I was there, I feel like you guys have arrived, but is there like work to do? Oh, there's so much work to do. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we recognize that we'll never see the full potential of this place in our lifetime, mm. even, even our children's lifetime, because as humans, we really don't know the full capacity or the full potential of landscapes because we've been so disconnected from that. Mm. And we're really excited. We've come a long way in our journey. And, mm-hmm. you know, in retrospect, if you would have asked me, hey, when do you think you guys are going to arrive to this place where you can have 100 bison and... Right more deer than anyone else in the county and more grass and more ground nesting birds, more snakes. I would have said maybe 20, 30 years, our local government soil science agencies would have said probably 40 years. And then our neighboring producers, the industrial guys would have said, you guys are fucking crazy. That's never going to happen. Yeah. And so we have been able to accelerate and rebuild quicker than we ever could have thought. And I think that's a really important concept that people have lost connection with, which is right welcoming mother nature's capacity for forgiveness, which is greater than our own species capacity for destruction. Oh, wow. That's so powerful. So it, what would you say it took you like how many years to get to where you had like grazing bison? You felt like it was like you could sell this meat and do those things. I feel like it was way quicker than you thought even. Absolutely. Yeah. Year three. Oh, wow. We had some good rain and we saw a really powerful example of this is we had creeks on the property that were were never recorded. So they were like prehistoric creeks that flowed in this ecosystem and serviced the wildlife and probably serviced the Native American communities and some of the early pioneer European settlers. And they were lost. They were forgotten in time. They had been dry as long as anyone could remember. And so three years into this journey, we were able to increase our soil organic matter to the point at which we were capturing rainfall effectively for the first time in over 100 years on hundreds of acres of land. And so for every rain event, we were capturing 100 million gallons of water. And that water was filtering through the soil, through the limestone, and into an aquifer that was underneath our ranch that we were unaware of. And after a couple of years, that aquifer level rose to the point at which springs sprung. Water flowed from rocks that no one knew existed there. And those springs have been persistent. It wasn't seasonal. It wasn't wetland. They are here year round. So we literally, through the collaboration of those bison, I like to say the bison were the primary driving force for this, but they called in water to the land. And the land is now singing with life because that's everything. That is a resource for wildlife. It's a resource for us, for recreation, for habitation. And it's clean and it's just absolutely beautiful. So you, to be clear, you created creeks. Yeah. Creeks creeks came where no one knew they could be there. And that's just the beautiful capacity of working alongside Mother Nature. And totally. surprises like that happen every day out here. But that was just one that really resonated with us that now we have these amazing clean creeks on the ranch where when we bought the property, you would have never guessed they would be here 365 days out of the year. Yeah, that's nuts. And I remember at the Force of Nature conference, I can't remember who said it. They said, we think that water comes from above, but it comes from below. 
like you're saying, it really was a part of these grazing ruminant animals, caring for the land, caring for the earth, caring for the soil, and it created water. That just blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah. And another really beautiful way to think about that, Alan Savory, who is a, a hero of mine, said that it's not drought that causes bare soil, but it's bare soil that causes drought. And so that's exactly, you know, when I say that over 500 acres of this land was bare soil, we were ineffective at capturing any rainfall we got. It all ran off, took topsoil with it. And so the water cycle was shattered. And so once we covered that soil, we grew those plants, we had roots that were breaking up and changing the structure. We had the biology that was able to capture and hold the water. Well, what happened? We held water and then springs came. Springs came out of nowhere. So that was real special. Yeah, that's so crazy. And I mean, it's just funny how, I mean, it's sad really how we get so many things backwards. Just like you're saying, we think drought is from no rain. And yeah, even like I was at the pediatrician yesterday talking about, does my child have a gluten sensitivity or is it celiac? And I'm like, but how can autoimmune disease happen with these little kiddos? Like I understand autoimmune disease, like in your twenties and thirties with like triggers and stuff, but like little children. And he was like, in America, we got it backwards. We hyper cleaned and like desensitized our environments. Okay. Well, instead of helping our bodies, it hurt our bodies. Right. And so we just get things so backwards so often. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so, it's so true. And the connections between our own body and our own health and the health of the land is right. They're one and the same. They're connected. It's like looking in the mirror and to Mm. your point about sterilizing our own environment. But when we sterilize our soil, And when we Mm. sterilize our food systems, we're thereby sterilizing our own gut microbiome and our own biology. And so there's no, you know, question when you look back at a dysfunctional ecosystem, which we are from, we are from soil, we are carbon beings. How could it be that one system is in such disarray dysfunction and the other system can be functioning at a high level? It just doesn't happen that way. Right. So, you know, I think, again, the same healing steps that we can take for ourselves and our own microbiome can be directly translated and applied to soil systems and ecology. Oh, I love that so much. We're so connected. So we're talking about soil. My next question is all about this. So traditional farming, monocrops, tilling, all of these things can deplete the soil and essentially make it useless for continued traditional farming in that way. So can you tell us what makes regenerative agriculture different and how it continues to produce nutrient-rich soil, sequester carbon? How can we continue to use soil over and over in a regenerative agriculture practice? Sure. So conventional industrial agriculture is based on extraction, right? And so we're we're basically thinking about an ecosystem and we're destroying that ecosystem to create a blank slate that humans through management with chemical use and mechanical inputs can control and can dominate. And so when that happens, you the mindset that's pervasive is that cost needs to be above all else at the expense of all else. And so we're really focused on cheap and abundant food and everything else is compromised, right? The integrity of the ecosystem, the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, the animals that would have otherwise participated and celebrated, cohabitated, that ecology is gone. And then ultimately the end health of the consumer is compromised as well. And so that system is 
I mean, it doesn't take someone trained professionally in, in agriculture or ecology or nutritional science to recognize that we're heading towards a cliff, right? We've mm -hmm. been extracting our natural resources through industrial agriculture for almost 100 years, and we're at the point where we've lost our soil fertility. We've lost the nutrient density of our food, and you know we are losing our own identity as consumers, our connection to our land, our connection to our, to our health. And the connection to our communities. And so regenerative on the other side is co-creating, it's collaborating, farming, ranching in mother nature's image. So you have to recognize that all land that we farm and ranch was hewn from an ecosystem. Now, whether that be a savanna, a grassland, mm -hmm. a woodland, those systems were in place for millennia before we came here. And those systems were, it was a closed loop. They didn't need synthetic chemical inputs. They didn't need mechanical tools like tills to function at a really high level. And so when we look into those systems for inspiration, we can see that there's a couple principles that are in place. And these are the principles of regenerative agriculture, which is like one, cover your soil. Bare soil is enemy number one. Number two is biodiversity is key. All healthy ecosystems are teeming with life. Insects, birds, reptiles, plant species too, right? And so animals plants, part of the system. Number three, all ecosystems that are in a high functional level have animal impact and some potential, right? So mm -hmm. the solution to remove animals from landscapes, say ruminant grazing cows or bison are bad. They should be, you know, they're extracting resources. They're degrading our landscapes. That's just not true because that doesn't mm -hmm. happen in ecology. It's sure. only through human mismanagement. Yeah. So number three and the number, you know, they keep going, but like, do not yeah. disturb soil. Do not spray it with chemicals. Do not till it. Right. So tell me this though. I mean, my my experience with regenerative agriculture is pretty much meat-based. So it's like your company, Will Harris's company, White Oak Pastures, you know, people who are selling meat. Yeah. So they have pigs, cows, you know, elk, all the things. So how do how do you create like vegetables, grains, whatever it is, with animals on the land? Like how does that work functionally? Yeah, that's a really great question, Caroline. And, and the answer kind of sucks. And I know a lot of people are going to be pissed off when they hear it. <laughs> but right now, there is no such thing that to have a plant-based regenerative system because the way at scale, so there's people sure. doing it homesteading. There's people doing right, it right, small right. scale. Yeah. But when you go to Whole Foods, when you go to your favorite natural, you know, organic co-op, those plants that are organic, those are not regenerative. They're actually right. worse for the soil because- when you remove the tools of chemical agriculture, you rely more heavily on mechanical tools like tilling. Mm. So those farmers, the organic farmers will till two to three times more a year than the conventional guys. So they're creating more disturbance to the soil. They're disrupting the biology even more and they're changing the structure. And so to your point, it's really tough. But, you know, animal agriculture is way easier, especially when we're dealing with a ruminant mm -hmm. because we're we're utilizing power from the most powerful entity in our whole solar system, which is the sun through photosynthesis, growing green, growing plants. And it's closed loop. And those cows, those bison, those sheep, those goats, they're grazing on that. And then they're cycling that nutrition and that energy through their rumen, inoculating it with their microbiome, putting it back into the soil, feeding the soil. And then the soil feeds bigger and better plants that nourish the animals. So it's all mm -hmm. this beautiful, virtuous loop. But plant-based agriculture does not work that way at scale because- mm -hmm. Without animals as a part of that system, you're having to import fertility, either chemical fertility, or you're literally just taking 
manure from right. uh, a field of bison and then putting that on your property. And so then there's, you know, expenses with fossil fuels to transport that, tractors to spread it, tractors to incorporate it and integrate it into the soil. And so the best example, the best hope of a regenerative plant-based system would be one where you have your cash crop. So say it's like uh, you want to grow kale. And so you plant this field of kale, but it can't be a monoculture, right? So you have some diversity in there. You have cover crops. And then after you harvest your kale, well, you put bison or sheep or goats mm-hmm. or cattle in there. And then they graze that pasture during the off season, during the non-growing kale season. And they cycle fertility and they aerate the soil and they add biology. And then you plant kale again when the time comes. And, oh, and yeah. You know, there is potential for that, but it hasn't been applied at large scale yet. Yes, that is so interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. So my other question is, how do you grow kale or whatever it is? It doesn't even matter with these like cover crops. How do you do both at one time? Because like, I feel like when I think of plant agriculture, I think of these traditional rows and it makes sense to me that you just like harvest that and that seems easy. But how do you like mix it all up? How do you harvest the the kale? (laughs) (laughs) The biggest obstacle right there is uh, the human mind, right? You have to overcome that (laughs) paradigm where it's like, I want this beautiful monoculture, this tilled field that's lifeless. And then I only want kale growing for a thousand acres. You just need to get that shit out of your head. Okay. Perfect. Step one. But the way that people are successfully doing it is every crop, like kale has a growing season, typically depending on where you live, it could be three months out of the year. It could be four or five. And so you still have more than half the year where kale will not be grown. And it's very typical for farmers to till that field and leave it bare for the majority of the season until it's time to plant kale again. Mm -hmm. But the alternative is in, you know, the six, the eight months where you're not growing your primary crop, you plant a multi-species cover crop with a no-till drill, right? So you're not disturbing soil biology. Mm -hmm. You grow this beautiful pasture with tons of biodiversity, insects come, ground nesting birds participate, mm-hmm. deer bed and have fawn in that field. And then you graze it and then you graze it right before you want to plant your cash crop or in this example, kale again. And then you graze it really good. You add all that fertility, all that manure to the field. And then you put your kale in on top of everything and yeah. um, you can time it to where those cover crops, you know, they're, again, they're warm season, cool season plants. Well, time it to where whatever season you want to plant your cash crop is kind of petering off or or tapering down. Yes. Okay. So when is force of nature going to do this? Oh my gosh. (laughs) That is a whole, I mean, when someone does this, we'll have arrived. Yeah. We will have made it. (laughs) We can start eating vegetables and feeling good about it because you're you're spot on. I'm I'm the same way. If I want to eat the best for the land, the best for my body, the best for community regeneratively, it's only meat at this point in time. I know. That's so sad. And like, that's why we now have a home garden. I literally came home from your conference and was like, we got to make garden. If we can't move to a farm, <laughs> we nice. have to have garden beds. Oh, well, man, okay. So, so I still don't understand why tilling is bad. Can you tell us what makes tilling bad? Yeah, absolutely. So you have to imagine these tractors that, that are to, to till a field that's significant. So hundred acres, 200 acres, you typically have these tractors that can be anywhere from a quarter million dollars to a million dollars. And they are heavy. They are thirsty for diesel fuel. And so there's a lot of fossil fuel inputs, Mm. carbon emissions, leaving that tractor. And when a till runs through a field, the first thing you can see with your eye is this like cloud of dust or dirt kind of drifting in the air. And if you get behind that and you smell it, 
that's carbon. That is carbon that's being released from the soil that is now becoming a part of atmospheric carbon. And that, and we have a carbon imbalance, right? We have too much carbon in the atmosphere. Right. So there's something like third of all carbon that's ever been put in the atmosphere, that atmospheric load, that heritage load, a third of it has come from tilling. And so you're disrupting the carbon cycle, but then you're also doing so much unintended negative consequences on the actual landscape. And so you're removing all life. The purpose of the till is to prepare a field to be planted in a monoculture and you're disturbing the biology. So you're killing the life that's below ground. You're killing the structure of the soil permanently. And then you're leaving the surface of the, of the soil bare, which has implications for temperature, water permeability, and even just have the ability for animals to co-create or, or coexist on that landscape. Yeah. That, yeah, I didn't realize, the thing I didn't realize about that was the carbon that gets into the air. That makes so much sense. And not only that, but also like clearly the more machines that are using diesel fuel, the more carbon we're putting into the atmosphere. So instead of tilling, the option is ruminant animals and their hooves. Is that right? Just depends on your context. So this is a conventional till. I'd say the closest alternative to a till if you're in like a plant-based system because if you're in an animal-based system a regenerative ruminant system you don't really need a till because you're just right. depending on native perennial grasses or you can plant some other cover crops but the way that you do that is with a no-till drill and so it's like a seed drill where there's a disc that comes before everything else and creates a very shallow cut into the soil. It can be like mm. a quarter of an inch, an eighth of an inch. You don't even see it. And then the machine drops a seed and a little packing wheel comes at the very end. So you can see gotcha. hundred acre field and you do not disturb the soil biology. You do not compromise the integrity of the water cycle or the community dynamics of the plants that are already growing there. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, it's cool. So, so there, so there are options. We have options. <laughs> yeah, don't don't lose hope. The you know technology is not necessarily the enemy, and neither is the till. But it's just our use of those technological tools that are causing the destruction. So we can still have ingenuity and creativity and come up with really amazing innovation like the no-till drill that solves a lot of these issues for farmers and ranchers. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So all of your ruminant animals, so your beef, your bison, elk, venison is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. So I feel like, unfortunately, this label of grass-fed seems to be yet another label that was hijacked. <laughs> so can you talk to us about what 100% grass-fed or grass-finished means and also why that's important for the consumer? Man, this is a really tricky creative deceptive marketing technique that was adopted primarily by the industrial conventional system. And so when a product says 100% grass-fed, that nowadays can be manipulated to meaning, well, every single beef cow or bison or ruminant animal, one that's intended biologically to appropriately consume grass, at some point in their life, they definitely ate grass. So you can say <laughs> grass fed because it's past tense, but that does not guarantee that at the end of the life, they were fed grass. And that's really when animals in a conventional industrial system are treated like commodities, when, they, when there's not respect for their sentience and for their own health. And they're removed from that pasture setting and they're confined and they're fed a diet that's not species appropriate that eventually makes them sick. 
And it's towards the end of their life. And so that, you know, like the loss of energy, the loss of the health and the vibrancy of that animal and the sentience and the spirit and soul of that animal is degraded. And the end consumer will will eventually absorb that energy, right? Transfer it mm. to our own bodies, which is not good. And so that label where it really specifies 100% grass finished, that's like going the extra mile. That's really the differentiator. And so you want to make sure that that's on the package because that guarantees that that animal was never fed corn or grain or species inappropriate diet. And so, yeah, yeah, really be sensitive to that. I mean, it's so subtle. It's the difference between 100% grass-fed and 100% grass-finished. And do not assume that grass-fed means it was grass-finished because it doesn't. Sure. And then the next step, of course, is regeneratively grown for sure. So just like you were saying, regenerative agriculture benefits the animals, the ecosystem, our planet and us. So I would love for you to chat with us about the increased nutritional density that you've seen in your meat versus just standard CAFO meat available on the shelves. Yeah. You know, this is, we're kind of like, you're getting into a topic where we're at the we're at, we're kind of like in the pioneer days We're we're at the frontier of really understanding nutrient density in meat mm. and specifically how it differentiates on the ecosystem that that animal was raised. Because if you read some books or watch some movies, like Diana Rogers is a nutritionist, right? She's amazing, but she publicly takes the stance that there is no difference in the nutritional quality of grass fed meat and grain fed meat, even more so regeneratively raised beef than non-regenerative. And it's because that that data just isn't there. We don't have the technology quite yet in place. And so really what she's saying is we don't have the replicable studies that we can reference that objectively demonstrate this hypothesis. Sure. But you and I can say that's that's bullshit. Like yeah. how can how can you say that if you're eating an animal that's sick, that's kept alive with antibiotics or a plant for that matter, a plant that's sick, you know, you go out in your garden and there's a tomato that's rotting, that looks horrible, that's being infested by insects. How can you say that tomato is going to be less nutrient dense than one that's resilient and that has an immune system and that's adapted to that ecosystem and the biology that has some kind of connection to a soil system that's providing it with antibodies and things to fight pests, right? And so that's where I get I get a little bit disenchanted and disenfranchised by some of the convention, like the wisdom of peer-reviewed research, right? Because we can trust our own instincts and we can say that's there's just no way that an animal that's healthy, that's resilient, that's living this biologically appropriate thriving lifestyle, how can that have the same amount of nutrition as an animal that's being kept alive through antibiotics? Just doesn't make sense. Right. But we're just there. We're just starting to figure that stuff out. Well, can't out we now. test the meat itself? Like, can't we test the meat like side by side? Let's let's find the vitamin A. Let's compare those. Let's find the CLA. Let's test that. Can we not do that? So this is, I mean, you're like in real time right now. This is what is happening for the first time because five years ago, we committed to sending a couple pounds of a bison every single year to have the nutritional density checked. And we were really looking to measure changes. So improvements over time that were linear, that correlated with the health of our land and the soil specifically. And we could not find a laboratory that could do that at a level to where we were understanding the micronutrients mm -hmm. and, and some of the relationships there. It was just so esoteric. 
And so we wasted a lot of money year one, two, and three with these results that we couldn't even interpret. But there are people right now in real time that are figuring this stuff out. And I tell you, in the next six months, there's going to be some mind-blowing, revolutionary studies that are released that are exactly, you know, consistent with, with what your instinct is. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll just have to have you back to, <laughs> you heard it here, <laughs> the results what... of these studies. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited too. Yeah. That's awesome. So when people ask you, but I've heard that red meat causes heart disease or red meat is a precursor for colon cancer. What is your response to that? And I'm asking for my husband, I'm going to be honest, because like <laughs> every other, like every three months, he's like, I feel like we need to be vegan. And I'm like, this can't work out. You can't oh, say these things. You can't say yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah. Well, you're not alone. You're not <laughs> yeah. alone. And so I, I, I always go to two places whenever I have this conversation. And the first is that how can red meat be bad for human consumption if we've evolved for the last 200,000 years as a species existing on red meat? right? Mm. Like we did not evolve with metabolic syndrome and chronic inflammation and Alzheimer's and obesity. Like that is a recent phenomena. That is a speck on the timeline of human evolution. And so there's nothing wrong with eating meat in a biological historical sense. So we really have to question like, well, what does that mean right now at this point in time? What are the other variables that are contributing that are different for the first time in the human experience? And there's a lot, right? But the second thing is when people reference studies like, oh, you know, there's this like Ansel Keys study from the 50s or the 60s. It said like cholesterol and butter was bad and we should be eating vegetable oils. Right. Well, like that's when you really have to say, look at the research, like the research that comes up with these conclusions is all out of default. And the ones that say animals are bad for the ecosystem those are always studying dysfunctional systems. They're always studying the feedlot industrial model. They're not looking at a regenerative grass-fed model. And so you really have to be careful about research in general. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. And then the second question in terms of like how meat affects us or the environment. So when I just want to know for kicks and giggles, what do you say when people say like, and if you really care about the environment, you'll be vegan. Yeah. I mean, good luck with that. I, uh, <laughs> my wife and I were vegan for a while. And so we I were can, too. I've been there. Yeah. So I can, I can sympathize and I, and I can say like that false narrative, it's based on a complete disconnection with an ecosystem. You've lost mm -hmm. reality and you've lost touch with the land and the earth from which we depend on and from which we become like, which from which we are. And so that's ultimately like you have no idea how mother nature works and how it's evolved and how we are a part of this system. We're not separated from the system. I also think that it's really important to like when you opt out and when you become vegan, you're essentially saying, I don't want to vote. Like I, I, I don't like either candidate in this, you know, mm -hmm. like it's like the political system. Like people are very apathetic. They don't like to vote for the right or the left. And so they're just saying, shit, I'm not going to vote. Well, going vegan, you're, you can't not vote. You're still voting for a conventional industrial model that degrades ecosystems. Mm -hmm. You're, you're not voting for a better, more virtuous grass fed system. So thereby 
the incumbent degraded industrial feedlot system will prevail because you're not participating. And so you're really just mm. screwing everything over. It's the worst thing you could do to become vegan if you really care about landscapes and if you care about animals. Wow, that's a really fantastic perspective I hadn't considered before. So thank you for that. So we've gotten to the end here, Taylor. And so I'm going to ask you the two questions that I ask everybody. So at the end of your life, when you're looking back, what will a successful life look like to you? Okay, this one is, I love these types of questions, but it's a big one, right? <laughs> it's so um, big. And I, and I think about this stuff too, and I get lost in my thoughts, but ultimately like, there's this theme where, you know, I, I feel like this idea of hope because if I can live a life where I create hope and primarily mm -hmm. hope for my children, I have two beautiful girls. If I create hope for their future and hope, if I can inspire people, you know, that's the best that I can do because when you have this, when you create hope, you, you unleash, you unlock this potential for creativity. And when you have that creative capacity, you're able to really think of a new paradigm. You're able to solve problems. You're able to break out of the mold. And so that's how we're going to drive change. That's how we're going to save our species. That's how we're going to right our wrongs and work alongside with mother nature. So that's my biggest thing. And that's what, what I can, I can strive to do in my lifetime. Oh, I love that so much. So what is something in your life you feel like you've been specifically intentional about recently? And what's something in the future you'd like to be more intentional about? Great question. So before this podcast, I got in a workout and I try to do that every day in some form, which it's either like being out on a ranch, country CrossFit, getting outside, using <laughs> yeah. my body, picking up a shovel, shoveling shit or whatever, just using my body. And that is something that's really important to me. I've been really committed to with exercise and fitness my whole life. Yeah. And then the part of me that wishes I could do better. Is that what you said? Yeah, or, something you'd like to be more intentional about in the future. More intentional. I think that we all, and this is me, but I feel like everyone should be more intentional about leading with love. And even if it's in your heart, just hugging the people who are close to you and thanking them for being themselves and creating beauty in your life and sharing this journey with you. And so I think that's something that I wish every single time I saw a friend or my wife or my kids, like the first thing that I could say was just, I love you and thank you for being you and thank you for creating beauty. Mm, that's so good. So Taylor, thank you so much for being here today. Where can people connect with you more? You can head over to forceofnature.com. You can also head over to roamranch.com and you can come out to the ranch because we have tons of community events like come out here and learn how to harvest a bison in the field with us or you know learn how to hunt here a lot of really cool opportunities and then the other thing i'll just plug is i started a podcast called where hope grows and yes. it's it's yeah it's stories from the land so it's really this this channel to connect you to people who are living on land that are celebrating co-creating with mother nature and hopefully create some inspiration in your life I love it so much. It is on my list of things to listen to. I'm so excited. Well, thanks for being here and we will talk to you soon, Taylor. Thanks, Caroline. Y'all, I just love learning more and more about regenerative agriculture and how animals really are crucial to the regeneration of our soil, of our land. And I am so thankful that people like Taylor and Katie are 
working Rome Ranch are figuring out how nature intended this whole thing to go. Please prioritize getting your meat from Force of Nature. I find Force of Nature online. I can also find it in my local natural grocers, which is just so easy. I will be sure to link Force of Nature, their website in the show notes. So be sure to check out all of their different products there that you can buy to support this movement. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next week.